Welcome to Thug Crowd Radio. Please listen to this important disclaimer in its entirety. All participants of this Thug Crowd Radio episode are characters. None of the stories told during these episodes are based on facts, truth, or reality. All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real-life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, trust your inner criminal. Howdy. How y'all doing? Welcome to Thug Crowd episode 25. Oh, yeah. Speaking of episode 25, um, <clears throat> I went through all the uh, all the audio uh, this weekend, and I compressed it and made it leveled and painstakingly cut out some of the awkward silences that we might have um, that would make it really unlistenable. <laughs> For um, for somebody who is listening to just the audio, um, or unlistenable in general, but uh, yeah, we actually have thirty five episodes. Um, I did the, we did the numbering scheme as like a point five for like the Sunday streams that we did. And yeah, we have over seventy hours of content. Damn, that yeah. is wild. Yeah, that's a lot of shit. Ask. <laughs> it's a lot of memes and a lot of uh, just. Uh, audio shit posting um but yeah it was pretty sweet um but yeah i have the link on the screen there uh it's thugcrowd.com forward slash archive.html actually let me double check if that's actually the link uh yeah okay it is um but yeah there's i, I put it so we have all of our audio um see now all the audio and all the twitch youtube streams as well as show notes um for each episode in a nice little table there um, we're trying to get the um, the actual audio onto all the different um, platforms like iTunes and stuff. And um, luckily, we have uh, Patrick Gray from Risky Business giving us um, some of his tools that he uses to actually distribute stuff. So it'll be nice and professional for those of you who like to listen on the go. Cool. Just help us out with that. Um, but yeah, we did it though. We listened to a lot of audio. It was awesome to hear. It's awesome to see, though, we uh, have grown quite a lot since the first episode. Um, have a lot of the same faces and then a lot of new faces, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, so thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. We have uh, Georgia Wheatman, who is the author of uh, Penetration Testing, a hands-on guide to hacking, which is, like, if you have taken the OSCP or taken any other sort of certifications where you need to be practical, or if you just wanted to learn pen testing in general, it's probably something that has uh, crossed your path at some point. It's kind of like a little Bible of the process of how you actually do pen testing in the real world. And uh, I'm really grateful that she actually wanted to come on um, and talk to us because she has a lot of really cool information um, in general, being a pen tester, an author, and uh, starting her own business and everything too. So I have a ton of questions. 
Um, but yeah, uh, I link the show notes. Um, you can probably see them still on the screen there. Um, I'll link them one more time just in case people are just joining us now. Um, but yeah, just follow along with us. Um, the first uh, story of the day, though, I kind of want to get into with you, Shell, um, is our the thing that you found was it yesterday? Oh yeah, it's something I've been sitting on for a little bit. Um, I was just doing some recon, so I really enjoy recon. And there's uh, turns out that if you go like there's a giant scans.io database uh, that you can download, and it's like 300 gigs. 30 gigs or some crazy amount of fucking text. Yeah. And uh, so I put it, I downloaded this giant flat file and then put it into like a you know, little flat file database, and ran through it in uh, Go. So mm -hmm. I was figured it was a good project to learn Go with because Go uh -huh. did it quicker than you know anything else that I tried. Um, for just like parsing out through flat files. And there's also like, there's all sorts of ways to do it. I'm just playing around with a lot of stuff like that for a few different projects. But anyway, um, so it's just every like A record, every C name record that Rapid7 has, has like ever seen. And so it's really good for doing, uh, you know, subdomain takeovers and whatnot. But if you look at the ones for Tumblr, any like abandoned domains, like if someone, uh, deleted a blog or like changed their URL or what have you. Um, you know, and the CDM record's still there, you could just swoop in on it. And so I got a list of all of those and just threw it out there on Twitter. It was like eighty over eighty five hundred of them and some of them were real funny and made for a good time. Figured I'd share and uh, let other people in on the shenanigans. Hell yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it was pretty cool the amount of domains that you found. A lot of them are interesting. Uh, there's a lot of mail servers, which I was kind of puzzled about. Yeah, um, I don't know if the people were just like, I don't know what that was. There was a lot of mail dot, and uh, yeah, I don't know why. Doesn't doesn't make sense to me, but yeah, we'll see. I'm kind of curious as to how like I definitely do some testing on it, but. Seeing you know something is routed through Tumblr, but it's a, not an MX record, or unless it is somewhere in DNS, I don't know. But it's weird. Was this maybe in the past? Maybe not a Tumblr, but they had like uh, an acquisition of some blogging platform or something that had vanity mail domains. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. I like I said, I stripped out all of the other information that was there and just left it as just the uh, domains. So. It could be some crazy stuff. There's also like some false positives in there, um, like which is weird because there's some that 404, um, but also when you try to claim them, they say they're already taken. Um, yeah. So uh, there's a few a few things like a few weird things about it, but for the most part, it's just all you know, kind of funny stuff. Yeah. Definitely a lot of interesting, <laughs> interesting URLs on there. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. It sort of reminds me of when uh, Google started. So, if you're, do you guys remember when G Suite came out? And or oh, it wasn't called G Suite at the time. Google for apps for business, maybe it was called. I remember when it came out. 
so when it when it came out it was actually free so you could just register your domain right and you'd get like uh originally might have been 50 accounts and then they dropped to 10 or something i can't remember it was a little, there was a lot of accounts and they were free um so people registered their domains and they were using gmail for business now what happened was what G, uh google decided that uh you, you, or everyone had to upgrade to like a business type account and you'd click on the upgrade button and the only thing that changed is now you pay for the service but um it, it doesn't actually there's no new features or anything right yeah um but a lot of domains were lapsing so at one point um a friend and i scraped a bunch of uh, expiring domains and then we checked the mx records to see if they were uh, google domains and then purchased a bunch of domains for you know like like expiring domains that are like rent like maybe probably used by spammers like xzy2357.in or something you know and bought those and then recovered the uh google apps for business accounts so, and the mm-hmm. uh, the result was we ended up with like um grandfathered accounts so that we never have to pay for like g suite basically because yeah. you can put extra aliases like um onto those accounts extra domain aliases so like yeah this whole uh expiring domains changing domains taking over um like these tumblers that they there might be a nice follow-on effect it's possible that uh if you you mentioned there was mail servers there like if the, if mx records are set to google and somebody has like let something lapse then it might be a good chance to snap up some of those grandfathered accounts yeah, as well there's definitely um there's definitely some value in just snatching up stale mx records and sucking every possible mail that ever comes to that any address in that domain you control yeah um, if you get one account one valid account recovery or something out of it it will pay for the cost of registering the domain so i can imagine that a nation state well, somebody with those resources and time um, get a lot of value out of just hoovering up fuckloads of expired and stale domains. Yeah, those uh, mail subdomains may have just been like wildcard uh, C names, but they showed up on the Rapid7 list because mail is something that they checked for. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Oh, pretty cool. Um, yeah, um, we should get into some of our news here because we kind of have a bit of it and we have some extra stories too. Um, yeah, so the first story that we have on our show notes here is um, pretty good. Uh, we've seen it on Twitter, seen it unfold. Bit5 finally gives up the claim that their cryptocurrency wallet is unhackable. This is pretty funny. Because, I, mean, um, I mean, we've seen what happened. If you guys didn't, haven't followed the story so far, um, basically, um, John McAfee's company. I'm not sure if he's, a, he's not the owner of it, but he's involved in the company. He's um, the president of the board, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's some I sort of high level. Role, his main role was around marketing, though. Let's not forget that. Like, you know, I, uh, as oh, much as sure. McAfee shit, I, I love McAfee. I don't care. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is regardless of what you think of it, means you know, obviously a smart guy, but he put out the um, he put out the claim that their wallet was unhackable, and they said that um, basically that it it was they had fortress-like security that could not be hacked or penetrated by any outside attacks. And so, obviously, when you challenge Infosec Twitter to a can you hack this thing? usually or you you always are gonna lose uh, so uh, you know basically we saw people running doom on it some people rooting it rooting the actual device the android device on 
um, the the wallet, um, and then people, you know, there's so many exploits. This is pretty awesome, actually. If you look at uh, Cyber Gibbons' Twitter, you definitely will see um, the whole, the I guess, the whole story unfold. But yeah, so they had to take that out of their, um, they had to do an announcement on Twitter saying that they are going to remove the unhackable claim from their uh, marketing. Um, so yeah, and I don't know what they're going to do about those um, those bug bounties that they had put out because they they basically had way too narrow of a scope, I think, and they kept kind of moving the the goalpost quite a bit. And well, was, the latest on the latest on this is McAfee's offering twenty million dollars to hack his wallet, his Bitfi wallet. Yeah, uh, and so and so people have responded. All right, bring your stupid wallet to forty four coin. Uh, see how we go. <laughs> He won't, he won't do that, but this is amazing publicity. I mean, he's doing really well to, to ramp this up. Um, yeah, as far as marketing goes, he definitely he does. on the head. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I haven't, sorry, is... I haven't followed this closely enough. Is he not, is he not, um, is he not actually acknowledging the, like, the client side vulnerability or whatever the, that cyber no, 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 is no. I, It's basically, basically, you know, the, he's not going to eat his own dick for one. But, yeah. Um, so he, what he said is basically that they've got these wallets and these wallets, are, as we've seen, shitty Android phones, they've been sent out to, you know, there's just components missing off them. They've, they've got a custom firmware. They've been sent out to uh, users. And when you purchase the uh, device to hack, they preload it with $10. Now, when they buy preloading, that's like a wallet that isn't actually stored on the device. You need to use a deterministic, like, so you use uh, like the equivalent of BIP39, I guess, which is using, uh, right. uh, like. So they, yes. they own your Bitcoin wallet from that point forward. If you use their free wallet that comes with a phone, um, right, they so, can then later recover any any funds that you put into any deterministically generated wallet from that seed wallet, right? Right, exactly. So, like, you have to put the passphrase in in order to get access to the coin. So they're saying you can't get the ten dollars out of the wallet, right? That's their claim, which is true. You can't get the ten dollars out until somebody accesses, you know, their uh, their wallet that you've already backdoored. So, like, supply chain attacks, you know, messing with something, evil made attacks, like all this kind of stuff. There's guys who've written. Um, I can't remember who it was. It wasn't Cyber Gibbons, but it was somebody who was working with where he. Um, he wrote a tool to scan memory for what looked like the past, like, you know, the, I think it was the passphrase or like the, the seed. I can't remember. And then he had cyber Gibbons unlock his wallet. And in which case in, in that scenario, he stole the money. So that, that did happen. But, and this was a few weeks ago as well. So it's the definition of unhackable that they've been claiming this whole time. Well, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, then the cold, like cold boot attack came out and all that stuff too. So. Yep. Yes. So this, I just just going through the um, the news on this, and I can see they they finally give up and said, okay, we're going to take the word unhackable out of our marketing material. Um, <laughs> the fact that these guys are playing in an unregulated space like crypto is the only reason they can put a product out with the word unhackable on it. Like yeah. any other marketplace, if you were to put a device in like local computer store that said unhackable on the box. They'd be sued to oblivion. It's, they're not allowed yeah. to do that. There's like criteria and claims testing and all that kind of bullshit. Um, yeah. The only reason they can they can do that in this space is because there isn't government oversight saying, "Hang on, you can't say unhackable." Like you got to back that up. Unhackable by who? Tested by who? According to which standard? 
Um, yeah. In the crypto world, you could just you could just snake oil your way to millions of dollars. Clearly, Cappy's um, proving it. So, yeah, well, they I, already I fouled good. up. They already fouled up with the FCC because they didn't have any uh, identification on it. They kind of stopped talking about that after it was mentioned. This is yeah. uh, this is just crypto all over. Like it, right now, nobody's in control. Nobody's in charge. You can just do whatever you like. Um, and and McAfee is doing what he likes, what he does best. Is how he got famous and rich in the first place. Yeah. Uh, in the in the wild world of antivirus, when there was no regulation, there were no rules. There was nothing. McAfee was just shitting out fake virus signatures to pad their virus database. Half the viruses in existence came from McAfee back then. Yeah. <laughs> they were just adding it. They were just like tweaking a couple of bytes, changing an MD5 sum, and then adding a new signature to their database. Oh, we just take millions of viruses. There's millions of viruses out there. Yeah, 98% of them come from you guys. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I think um, I think uh, McAfee's original, I think I said this on an earlier show, but McAfee's original quotes about the FBI versus Apple with, um, you know, to unlock the iPhone, you need a hardware engineer and a software engineer. This is exactly what he was talking about, um, except, you know, th like that situation was harder than hacking the Bitfire wallet when it comes to gaining root, gaining, like recovering things from memory, doing that sort of stuff. Like there was all kinds of interfaces on, on the Bitfire wallet. So I think McAfee was under absolutely zero illusion um, that this thing couldn't run Doom or have, you know. I think the only the only thing you need to do is point at previous tweets where, you know, a year or two ago he's on television talking about how every mobile device in the world is owned and can be owned and it's not possible to have a secure mobile device. Fast forward two years, he's pimping one. Yeah. Um, right. That's it. Just, I mean, that just cancels him out as an authority on the subject. It's very clear what he's doing. But the media are, are helping him along. Pretty scary. Yeah. I don't know. I think he planned it. I think he knew what unhackable meant. I think he knew that like people were going to blow up. Like exactly, we're having this. Well, we saw it. We saw it with Oracle Ten, right? Unbreakable Oracle. That was their. They changed their trademark to Unbreakable Oracle. Titanic, unsinkable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is now, but David Litchfield took that very personally, and then was there was like ten years of, of nonstop Oracle zero days after that. So. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, the next thing that we have on our on our list here is also another funny, weird thing that kind of goes along with some other stuff that's come out recently. Um, it's the remote execution, remote code execution on uh, packagist.org um, for basically the, the package server behind uh, Composer for PHP. Um, so somebody had found that you could basically just type like, you know, dollar sign in, in parentheses, like whatever you want into into this website for your repository URL, and it would just get executed on the shell. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, the, the write-up for this was pretty good as well. Like, it goes into like it wasn't very long, but basically, like it, it goes into uh, Mercurial, like HG, um, where it, it gets executed on the command along with a bunch of that stuff. So it actually got executed twice, which is the double lols. Yeah. Um, but the the thing about this is like. I find like we've seen this with npm and we've seen it with other package managers as well but what i find is the most hilarious thing about this one is being php php's ecosystem has is terrible like it's always been a case of copy paste code zip your wordpress site send it to the other developer 
copy paste trash in select from one file to another and composer comes along and composer's like hang on wait guys let's use semantic versioning let's use uh you know let's use repositories that are maintained let's have attribution to authors let's like have all this stuff right and so <laughs> i thought you know like I, i've worked as a php dev where we used composer because it was it is a good idea like the the idea of composer is a great idea and then like lo and behold the php like run you know use system like comes back out again like code execution comes right back out because the php mentality still hasn't changed and now the yeah. package manager that is the solution to to the problem becomes the problem it's ironic it's like if, if if wordpress like bought github and and all their their best security people were now like github security people oh no <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. That's no good. <laughs> um, next where we got here, too, um, I thought it was interesting because of how long it, this thing took. Um, there was it San, San Benito County. Um, yeah, their government computers were taken for offline for a week um, due to some... It doesn't tell you what malware it was because this is like a local paper that this is from. But yeah, this... This seems like a nightmare for them. They had basically had to take a week of doing all of their. Um, there's the there's a county office of emergency services and some other um, public safety and public commission stuff. Um, basically, just taken offline and they had to do everything on pen and paper um, until they were able to redeploy their whole network. Um, it sucks. I like. I feel bad when I hear about this kind of stuff because I know how slow these environments already are. So I can't imagine how much slower it would be if you had to do everything on pen and paper, like getting, you know, whatever office document passed inter-office, you know, to just get, to check on your status for like food stamps or something, you know? Yeah, it's a total nightmare. And like I've talked about before, um, my home county, like got ransomware once and they literally like just kept restoring like, uh, <laughs> like, a month old backup, like yeah, it's like week in and week out uh, <laughs> while they're like trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, and it was yeah. like the like efficiency absolutely tanked. But it's I, it's I feel funny. Like, I, I feel like these IT guys that are running these systems, like because uh, so the town I'm from isn't very big either, and there's there was a role there was an IT role in the city council, and it wasn't paying a great deal. Um, and and someone I had known that took it for a short period of time, and basically, like this is going to be the case for every single like of this location. Like this is a this is a generic ass location, right? And nobody really cares or gets anything done. There's no the, the security. What like? Yeah. What's network security? Like, there's no. It's just like you know, run the AD server, make sure that the firewall is turned on if you have one, or like the ADSL router is turned on and you have NAT. You know. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's pretty. It's hard for them to be able to to pay for that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I've worked in those kind of environments too, and just seeing the IT team doing very basic things that it takes them an entire day to do, especially with. People, when you're also working with people who aren't computer people at all, and you have to, you know, work with them as they are also handling like a lot of sensitive information and big systems that need to be maintained. You know, you can't just play Farmville on your computer. 
Um, they, <clears throat> so <laughs> definitely, um, definitely sucks. I feel bad for some people and wish that there's some way to like actually help, like do real training for you know giving out real educational resources as well as just providing some sort of general support or help for the really the small town people that they get targeted for ransomware all the time by like just I don't know somebody who's like you're not going to make that much money anyway from them they're a very small town and like it just sucks you put them all out of business there's not a lot of incentive though for those admins to do anything about it like they yeah. don't prepare for the scenario because they just go to work every day in their gray shirt and their gray slacks and they rock up on time and they go home and you know then they go live their life out and their day job is an IT admin who cares about malware like we've got uh Norton installed we've got we've got McAfee installed he's a famous <laughs> internet man well sometimes they can't <laughs> do anything about it because like government websites will enforce like you know like java will upgrade and then for a year some state government website that's absolutely necessary will be like oh you've got to use this older version of java and you have to use internet explorer and you have to add us to the trusted every like it sometimes you just can't get around it like yeah. you got to bend over and open your ports in order to uh to use the software <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so the next uh, the next story we have here um, is interesting because somebody had posted something in Discord about this um, right after I put out the show notes. Uh, so somebody had changed the name of New York City to Jutropolis on a bunch of apps. And so this is like made into a big story. I mean, it's all over the place. But when I look at what the somebody had posted, I think it's from, let's look at OG users, some stupid forum. Um, let me see if I can actually... Uh, I wonder if I can do, if I can post the CDN link from Discord directly because I don't, uh, I'm not going to put it up on the, on the board here. But, um, but yeah, so this, it looks like this person here um, had just gone to um, openstreetmap.org, um, which is like basically you can edit stuff. You can edit the actual, um, it's called map data, and it'll just get pushed down eventually because uh, Snapchat and other um, like places that use this as their data source for when they do like Snapchat maps and stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, basically like this information or whatever, this this got pulled into like downstream um, and eventually pushed out to like Snapchat and other people's applications and stuck around there for a little bit because. They have to wait for whatever the cycle is that they refresh. I guess this person probably timed it pretty well to be able to get this to actually push down. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> once you get like, if you read the post, because I didn't have to write one line of code. Like, yeah, yeah, it, like went on. And it was like, oh yeah, this map, change name, and like not a small thing either, but the name of <laughs> actual New York City. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the yeah. thing is, though, is that it's, this is like, literally, it's like the Wikipedia of maps. Like, you can put stuff on there because they want it to be collaborative, but there's no, like, it seems like there's no protected uh, stuff there. Like, there's no protected pages, as, as Wikipedia would say. Yeah, and not to mention, like, the other thing is, right, like, it's a little bit hard to do when someone has, like, a lot of legitimate name changes in the past, right? Or, like, changes mm -hmm. in the past. So, they're, like, a trusted, like, trusted user, quote-unquote. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I but think, uh, for anyone to be able to do it, yeah. Yeah, I think John John Tobias, uh, one of the creators of Mortal Kombat, I think his Wikipedia says that he's the owner of the world's worst mustache. <laughs> like, I know there's a whole bunch of people like we've we've edited it as well. Um, that I won't name on stream, but just to add, you know, the, the uh, their occupation is not infosec; it's like chef or something silly. I mean, yeah. But uh, I think the the biggest thing, I think the reason why this hit the news, I guess, is you know, Jutropolis is very offensive uh, to to obviously a lot of people who live in New York, and I just think that, yeah, it's it's probably like the biggest you know thing that why anyone cares. Like I don't know how many people like is Open Street Map very popular or like or is it because it's like, used by a lot of like, places. Like yeah. Zillow, City Bike, Snapchat, a lot of big companies use it as their like open source data source because they don't, you know, you have to, don't you have to do a license to do Google Maps? I forget if you do or like an API yeah. integration. Well, you, you need a license for Google Maps if it is behind a paid, uh, like, um, paid wall. So if you have a paywall, then yeah, you need to pay like ten. I don't know, it was ten grand or something stupid. But um, companies like TomTom and Garmin and Navman, like whatever, I'm sure they don't use this as their data source so yeah i mean you would see that i mean snatch is pretty widespread same with zillow if you're looking for a house yeah. and oh great uh prices are i have to give a, a shout out to, to meep shape and gnaa and uh wikipedia vandals uh <laughs> well done guys like they're changing changing manhattan to inside job that's that's a class five star <laughs> Five star, which roll again comes up. It's just it's crazy though that like now that we have these sort of, you know, uh, these there's so much automation and there's so many pipelines that would take this information and just blast it out to everybody. It's not just like one single site defacement. It's like if you can hit certain things, you're going to get whatever defacement you have pushed to everybody. Like everybody's yeah. gone. Someone's going to deface it. Like <laughs> the service is going to deface it for you. Yeah, like that's so much of like what we've been talking about like, the last couple of weeks. It's just like all these like supply chain things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just so ubiquitous that everyone uses like trusts that some information source is you know going to do the right thing and have their information secured in this way and that way, and that's yeah almost never the case as we see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. a lot of companies though they want to uh, offload risk and in this case risk was offloaded you know in getting the maps wrong being the being the risk that you know having incorrect data so they offloaded it to a third party where they thought that that would be safe and in fact it increased the risk so take that threat modelers (laughs) (laughs) it's a violation of integrity right there um so next thing we have on here um pretty interesting in the story of how russia is trying to just block anything that's encrypted um, so Russia is now basically trying to roll out some deep packet inspection stuff to block Telegram because blocking any AWS or Google Cloud IPs just ends up blocking like so many services that they didn't expect. <laughs> I love the photo where uh, the, they're all throwing the paper airplanes into the air. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's I don't know it's interesting um, to see when governments try to do this sort of control and then they just end up doing something that's just so obviously now shady. It's not even just like, 
don't know. I just I feel like it just really blows. I don't know what you'd actually do to mitigate any of this sort of stuff. This is why yeah. no one tried to really block Bitcoin, right? Cryptos in general, because they're just going to show the fact that they can't really do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, there are, like, you can block, I think China put in some efforts to block certain coins and their propagation, but um, it's only, you know, they're only really targeting um, your, your low end user who is using the default port. They've followed the guide. The guide says use this TCP port and, you know, the traffic is fairly well, obvious. You yeah, say but... that, but I've, uh, I get blocked doing all kinds of tricky stuff when I'm in China and they watch and they, they deep packet inspect and it's not just me trying yeah. to connect to like commercial VPN providers. It's me connecting to my own shit at home and it works for a little while and then it stops working and it's null routed by China. So it's yeah, totally possible. Like... If, they, if they really want to get involved, they totally can. But they just don't like you were saying. They go for the low hanging. Yeah, exactly. So that, that low hanging mums and dads. If, if they block ninety nine point nine percent of users, and then they uh, don't block faith for fifteen minutes, I mean that's mm. like an acceptable kind of you know. Yeah, I mean you have to talk about how much it costs to do these things, right? Versus how much they really get out of it. Well, if they can make an example of someone, that that's worth a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. And the same thing is true with, uh, well, we've seen it with BitTorrents. And when we moved to like Pirate Bay, then we moved to trackerless torrents. And at that point, couldn't really go after the individuals or even people sh or even people in the middle of it. It was, it was like a two distributed at that point. There wasn't really one person you could point the finger at. Um, um, and without naming any other services that haven't been targeted yet that are quite old since, the, you, know, you know, since SMTP old. Um, you know, there, there's still services where, uh, DMCA, um, takedowns, um, are sent out to providers who are hosting data and they remove part of the file. And then the, the same takedown notice gets sent to the other providers on the same service. And then collaboratively, you know, everyone's hosting maybe 45% of the file, but there's enough 45% to make up the whole thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, that still flies under the radar quite well. Let's not name names. We'll talk out right. of school. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so the next thing that we have on our list here um, is pretty interesting. It was the sensitive data exposure via Wi-Fi broadcasts in Android OS, or CBE 2018-9489. So what this thing is is the, I guess, Broadcast system broadcasts by Android OS expose information about the user's device to all applications running on the device. So, like anything that your that you would broadcast when you're connecting to Wi-Fi is now or is available to apps. Um, and so, it's just some of the information is no longer available via APIs. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely weird. You can say basically like your MAC address, your local IP. Like what Wi-Fi yeah. stuff is all going on? Uh, it's 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 kind of ironic that they they make moves to protect uh, this information from leaking to other apps on the same device when it's leaking out via the radio to the entire world. Yeah, but I mean that that's one thing. I mean, hold on. Sorry, I just got to uh, grab some money. Um, yeah, no, it's one thing if you're gonna do use your local, I guess. I mean, yeah, you still have to be able to trust, I guess, some of the radio waves that are around you, but. 
I mean, if you have some sort of weird spyware, which we'll get into some more spyware stuff later, but um, yeah, I mean, it'd be able to just say like what Wi-Fi you're on and some remote app would be able to tell where you are, I guess, by that. Yeah. And this, I mean, this like, kind of tele, telemetrics information, uh, this belongs to Google. Only Google should be allowed to collect and search and store this kind of information. I, I think that's a third party we, developer. If, if we look at like gateway IP and DNS, like these, you know, are pretty um, sensitive due to like, you know, man in the middle one on one, let's up poison some shit. Like, oh, now we know what to up poison because that's the gateway, lol. Um, and, you know, you probably have access to. Oh, I mean, I don't really know on, on Android, but potentially the local app table yourself to add and remove entries, like, you know. Yeah. yeah. No, just and, uh, obviously some kind of, like, like it says in the article correlating with, like, Wiggle or some other Mac address database, map database thing, that local apps can now, they can get the kind of information that Google has, like Google Maps has, where that device has traveled, what stores you've been to, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Kind of correlate that um, based on remembered you know, access point broadcast names. Yeah, de defeating uh, the MAC address randomization is is pretty bad too. Yeah, I think as well, it's funny, like if you're on, um, so a plane is a good place to have a look at this, but you'll notice because when everyone, you know, planes that don't have Wi-Fi, uh, I should clarify, nobody's using, nobody's connected to Wi-Fi, but a lot of people don't turn that put their device in airplane mode and you see all kinds of like ssid uh probes being sent out and it's like oh so you know if you were to correlate yeah. there are maps you know that you can correlate that stuff against so it's pretty easy to figure out who people are and where they work just based on their iphone spitting out their name oh, hey and you guys noticed that when i was flying out to vegas um my uh device would you know, like I'm connected to the network, but I don't want to pay the $15 an hour. And every like hour, 45 minutes, my device would actually break through for a second. I would get Twitter notifications. <laughs> Anyone else ever seen that? Yeah, I've seen similar stuff on like hotels. Yeah, for, some reason. for sure. I remember when I was uh, flying for whatever reason, whatever plane i was on um they would allow you to access some google services so you could like um you could read like amp page like read news from like the fucking um, like amp sites yeah. or you like i could message people on like the weird google messenger I thing know if, uh, i don't know if i'm revealing someone's like elite zero day here but i know a lot of people that dns tunnel out through in-flight internet and yeah. just so they can get an IRC and it works I think, fine. Uh, I think yeah. Whitey Cracker actually put that in a song. Yep. <laughs> All right, so it's not so I guess it's, it's not zero day. Yeah, over DNS. There's uh some there's a really neat um thing you can help you do it on uh, GitHub. I forget what it's called though. Yeah, there's a tool in that's part of uh, there's a tool that's part of Kali and it's part of um, Black Arch and stuff as well. But it also there is a service that provides it on the internet already. So if you don't have your own DNS tunneling yeah. box set up, just Google, it's like the first Google hit for DNS tunneling. So like DNS tunnel um, .de, is that it? Yes, yeah, so something, something like tunnel, that. Like, tunnel 
something directly, like that. And D- <clears throat> DNS cat, like it's netcat, but DNS tunnels. And then you use like afraid.org or DNS tunnels.de, whatever it's called. Yeah. You've got to set it up before you get on the, you've got to have all this set up before you get on the plane. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's you funny because then, you like, clean, you can uh, just clone your neighbor's MAC address and use their paid stuff. There's a lot of fun stuff you can do. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a little, it's a little more evil, but yeah, you totally can do that. Yeah, Stop in theory here. I mean, with the MAC address stuff, though, you definitely want to, um, you want to like just before you're about to have a nap or something on the plane, if it's a long flight, you know, start the deal. Then, and no, I would never do that. Um, <laughs> Do they let but you yeah. take those deauth sandals on planes? Did you see that video with the mm-hmm. deauth sandals? You stomp around and it sends deauth packets. Uh, <laughs> That's TSA? pretty amazing. You haven't wow. seen that MG? Have you seen these? The deauth sandals. Uh, is that M- the one that Sexy Cyborg did or something? I think so. Nice. Yeah, just excellent. Just some basic gladiator sandal-looking things, nondescript-looking. But you stand when you stand, it sends out. Broadcast Wi-Fi deals packets. I wonder if they nice. get through TSA. They probably, they probably they get in trouble if you tried to take those through TSA and they showed yeah, up. If you, have, uh, if you have electronics in your shoes, you are going to jail. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's <laughs> probably. <laughs> I've had no issue bringing Raspberry Pis on with gigantic antennas. That's never what been about, an like, issue for me. Like, what about like sneakers that have got like lights in them and like LED displays and stuff like? They have, they have things for that, but if you're gonna have, you're gonna have a hard time explaining sandals that don't have lights on them, but have antennas <laughs> and right. a computer in them. But before we get any sort of a TSA called on us, let's go to the next story here. Um, <laughs> I'm like, kind of we can go deeper. <laughs> we could definitely go a lot deeper, tunnel way deep into this subject, but we, uh, yeah, I just don't want to um, tell anybody. So we're just playing Fortnite, guys, if you were listening. Um, so yeah, um, the next thing that we have on the list here is this um, Magneto Core malware that's uh, apparently like affecting those Magneto payment gateways that broker to like PayPal and other payment services. Um, it's like a, basically like a skimmer um, online uh, that has been found in over seven thousand different stores that post like uh, e-commerce sites that have Magneto. Magento, sorry. Oh yeah, Magento. Sorry, I keep mm-hmm. calling. Magneto. Yeah. Magneto a, is way cooler though. Uh, yeah, no, I literally like um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm thinking of a Magneto also as far as like pulling that um, what's it called? Data into you like a magnet. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going way too far into it. So yeah, um, no, it's pretty cool. Um, but it sucks at the same time because this is like very widespread. I think this comes back to what we were talking about earlier with Composer. That uh, PHP sucks. Stop running PHP apps. Apps. Yeah. Go use Shopify. Yeah. Go, go pay Shopify, and if they get hacked, you know you're probably not their biggest store. So. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, that when Pornhub like initially offered a bug bounty like years ago. They're like, oh yeah, if you can get RCE on our servers, you get like hundred thousand bucks or whatever. And this was before all the bug bounty programs. Uh, really a thing and someone just discovered like a php audit like an audit in php and used it to claim the bounty like <laughs> well like <laughs> yeah. that's that's one way to do that yeah it's, it's, yeah it's um it's good when you do that by accident but to actually sit out and like okay i don't have any vulnerabilities in this 
shitty CMS. I'm going to audit the entire stack. Um, very <laughs> rarely do businesses get that kind of scope. Like I only get like three or four days. I can't find a kernel zero day in three or four days uh, uh, in order to own some shitty CMS. So De- definitely cool, though, like Magento is is you know in the same realm as you know WordPress as Laravel as whatever. Like it's the Magento core might be great, but developers always want to install these stupid plugins and write their own code. And just because they can install Magento doesn't mean they know how to write code or understand what it does. Like copying and pasting from Stack Overflow is still a thing. <laughs> of course so, it is. This um, wouldn't be a big deal if uh, credit cards had some sort of 2FA on them. Just throwing it <laughs> out there. This is an American problem. That, yeah, funnily enough, the yeah, I did work on a project for that. Well, um, yeah. So there, there is MasterCard actually put out a card that has a rolling uh, CVV2. I don't know if it's available now. I think Visa did a might have been Visa. I can't remember. Did a rolling pan where the center six, I think six digits uh, roll over time, so that like over you know a thirty second window, so it makes your card like an OTP that still adheres to one. Um, but I don't, I don't know how. I don't know. I've never seen one of these cards in real life. I've just seen them on you know the internet and showcases and, and shit like that. So yeah. Um... Actually, we're out of the time here. It's going uh, to move on here. Uh, so, yeah, this, uh, the next story we have is uh, another spyware firm, another family spyware firm has um, called Family Orbit exposed 281 gigabytes of kids' data and photos. Um, it's family spyware. It's wholesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's for the kids. Literally. Um, so, the, yeah, the, apparently they had 38... Uh, or 3,836 containers on Rackspace um, containing all this data. Um, and then oh. somebody just guessed the password and got into it. And yeah. Yeah, 281 gig of children's photos. I can't think of any underground criminal sickos that would want access to that at all. Right? That's, <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. Like, where where is that going to lead, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, who knows if they're if anybody's actively targeting it for that purpose too, which is also fucked up because a lot of these companies are just pushing out some app. They're just trying to make it so that their parents can feel safe, and then they're inadvertently just rooting their kids and allowing you know having some backdoor access to them, which is just messed up. Yeah. One of the other things though is the container, the container aspect. Like, I'm sure from this company's perspective, they're like, oh no, it's safe. It's in a container. Yeah, you know, users are separated. They're in a container. It's like, well, obviously they got access to the host. GL, like you know, maybe they used a container breakout. Maybe they just access the host directly. Either way, wall containers not security. Password mm-hmm. container one, container two, container three. <laughs> yeah, and like Docker apps that are just like, oh, it runs in Docker, but it's root, so it's still using you know, still got the same access to like kernel syscalls as everyone else does as root. So yeah. Also in that same vein, uh, there is a Krebs article of MSpy, which does much the same thing, uh, got popped for the second time in three years. Wait, was it? Oh, oh wait, that was in there. Yeah. I mean, it's just very much the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've seen so many of these sort of, of uh, you know, companies get owned like constantly. 
whether it be like the real shady ones or the ones that are somewhat okay, but they're still kind of shady too. No matter who, they just get owned. The sort of people that the sort of people that get get some hacking skills and then start thinking, how can we profit from this based off people's fears and insecurities from normal people? That's yeah. how you get these like spyware firms that that are basically like in the private investigator kind of scummy world. But they yeah. use hacking. Oh, you mean like some sort of how you get hacking team as well? Yeah, absolutely. Don't name names, please. We don't want to. We don't want to get sued. But um, yeah, they they're, they are bottom feeding kind of people, and they get some hacking skills, and then they think, how can we monetize this based on the world that we come from? And so that's why you get these creepy spouse tracking, child tracking, and then at the other end of it, you get like hacking team. And like small shitty uh, um, defense contractor wannabe kind of companies in third world countries selling spyware tools to dictators. Because uh, you can get the same sort of functionality out of just Google turning on location services with an agreement. You know, to you know, tell your kids, "Hey, uh, I'm gonna know where you are all the time, and we're gonna use this logistics." Yeah. That's that's for legit people who don't have anything to hide. But if you want to spy on like your de facto's stepson or something because you know that he's she's not doing something in accordance with the you know that kind of world where it's uh you want to keep track of like your ex wife's daughter or whatever for whatever creepy reason. There's a huge market out there for these people. That's terribly creepy. The yes, same people that buy G- G- GPS tracking devices, right, to put in people's cars. You can totally buy those, but we know that, hey, we could just do that with a phone. Like, why would we buy a device? Well, because they yeah. want to surreptitiously install it in someone's phone and be a creep about it. Yeah, yeah. those GPS trackers have a back end that is wide open as well. Every one of those devices ends up getting popped. It's hilarious. I encourage it. Like, we should be continuously be popping these guys because they are snakes and they are beating off of like you know i mean if we if we were of that mentality and we were like okay we know we can do it with a phone so that we you know you can stick a phone in someone's tire well and the battery's going to last for x amount of time but or we could buy one from the internet and you could stick it in the same place or you you know there's enough skills in here to build one that is way tinier that lasts for weeks and go and hide it and then we could we could make it uh on mass and sell it but then that would make us these snaky assholes, the exact people absolutely. that we're talking about. So, yeah, absolutely. How cool is it to like, oh, I, I, I ordered a couple of things from Alibaba and I sticky taped them together and stuck them to your car and now I can track you. Yeah, well done, WizKid. Uh, that just Act. makes you a creep. <laughs> Owned, yeah. tracked. No, it just makes you a creep. Yeah, um, for sure. I think yeah. the real problem here is that these spyware services aren't on a blockchain of some kind. <laughs> it's more uh, uh, machine learning, actually. <laughs> machine learning blockchain spyware. <laughs> I need some uh, some immutable distributed uh, spyware, please. Uh, yeah, I want all my kids' pictures to be immutable and uh, also spyware. Um, so yeah, the uh, the next story we have on our list here is. Um, interesting is on ZDNet, it was about um, when a, the, basically somebody using WMIC um, for their malware campaign. And it just kind of goes into, I wanted to share it be, mainly because it's interesting to point out people who might not know about like LOL Bass, like living off the land, binaries, and scripts. 
basically just using um, tools that are already on, say, Windows to do stuff that you wouldn't normally do with it. But yeah, you can see that, you know, um, that that little trick someone posted earlier about how you can run batch batch commands or DOS commands from within FTP on Windows and doesn't I, get picked up by, by intrusion detection or endpoint security. Yeah, so you can run like regserver32.exe with a JavaScript payload from FTP.exe, and yeah. it never actually touches CMD.exe, so antivirus bypassed. Um, yep. that, that, that's kind of like on uh, the very XX subsystem in OpenBSD. So, like, where you have a, um, you can only execute binaries that have a, a hash associated. Um, so, in Junos, for example, you could just write a shell script. And that's okay because the shell's executing it and the shell's allowed to. That's, yeah, might as well whitelist bash at that point. <laughs> What's the point? Right. Pretty much, yeah. Just like don't don't have malicious binaries, just get real good at so that. We've seen, I, I, can't name, I can't name any customers or people affected by this, but I have seen um, the same living off the land, you know, um, visual basic tricks with WMIX in particular. Um, the same group of people from a eastern country seem to, to be doing this a lot lately. Um, and we've seen some pretty pretty widespread and really effective ownages using this technique, which from my point of view, I'm like, yeah, that's really that's really basic. Um, do that in Metasploit for the last seven years. But yeah, it's it bypasses AV and it's working. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely something to look out for, and if people don't know about how this actually works, I mean, it, it's pretty cool. So I would, uh, I would read that article, and then I would also read, I, I linked um, the actual repo, which has a pretty good explanation to what the living off the land binary stuff is, because, yeah, it's definitely useful, especially if you're taking, doing any uh, CTF or OSCP stuff, too. You know, it's much easier to uh, to use, like, certutil.exe to download your script rather than w trying to write a wget script in, like, Visual Basic and then make it work like that, or just pasting stuff into the terminal, because you can't... I think at this, point, at this point, we should just, like, get a list of every executable on every version of Windows and just fuzz them, just, like, pass a URL to every single one of them and see if they <laughs> open and run. Pass them up <laughs> to Oh, wow, yeah. the blah, blah, dot exe that apparently doesn't have any command line options? Yeah, it takes, like, an XS, XLST template file, and you can put JavaScript in it. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would, I would imagine so. Who knows? Um, the next story we have here real quick is, uh, like, this is interesting, the CamuBot banking malware. It's been targeting some Brazilian um, banks. Um, it's pretty interesting way of attacking people. It's a hybrid of, of phishing, vishing, and also installing a malicious driver for, like, your, uh, your auth. Um, like a YubiKey or whatever. I don't even know what actual thing is targeted. It doesn't say in here. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, they basically it's saying that they're trying to like fix their trying to like do something with their biometric auth, and they need to install remote access to their USB device, and they're able to then I don't even know. So, uh, I saw a talk about some Brazilian bank hacking um, a couple of months ago. Uh, local guy. Shout out to Icom and TSS and Jay. Um, but he uh, is a Brazilian dude who, who was showing some techniques they're using. And I, I was just surprised to see the workflow of logging into 
or Brazilian bank where they download an app to their machine anyway, and they have this software installed to do their net banking. And um, that was the beginning of his attack vectors. So that was like, you know, pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. No, like you would, would you like most people. I'm sure, like from you know, from Australia or I guess from the states as well. You know, you go to a browser. You don't, you don't have to install all this shit to get into your bank account. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The next thing that we have here, I thought was interesting too, um, is a little story that actually not Dan shared, but something you talked about it too. Um, is that the private sector is just not sharing data with uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's threat portal. So I mean, it's basically saying that there's only six non-federal organizations that have used it to share any threat intelligence with um, the government. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that's interesting that there's six. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what do you guys think? They're basically not sharing anything about we, we have the same problem here in australia as well um and it's at the point where behind the scenes um uh a lot of the feds are saying well they're on their own we know that they're owned they won't talk to us about it they're on their own they won't give us information they won't give us threat intel we won't give them threat intel it goes both ways yeah um that's so a bit I scary think there's a i think point it's where clever I, I just don't think there's a need to always share information with the government like it depends what information like you know there's a, there's a lot of different factors that that are, that are going to play into this why or why they don't if it's straight up threat intel like you know oh you know your cisco routers are all owned because you run owned firmware you idiots like listen to cert like that's probably a good thing but um when it comes to sharing data back into the government i mean that's always a scary you know concept so yeah no, I feel like it's 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 hard for for people to want to do that. I mean, especially well, in the past, we have these private, you know, pu public private partnership sort of intermediary businesses like like Sands and ISC and and Shadow Server, Shadow Server and HoneyNet and all these other private um, volunteer projects that that try to bridge that gap. And mm -hmm. it seems some of them have fallen away in the last few years. Like a lot of the a lot of the, the 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 security knights of the internet, I guess you would call them, for lack of a better term, these working groups that put in volunteer time to monitor botnets and take them down, yeah, seems fallen away a bit. Maybe too much corporate got involved. Too many corporate threat intel guys came along and kind of muscled yeah, their think, way uh, in. I think some of those projects had sort of that good mix between the two sides as well. You know, uh, guys who may or may not work for someone, and guys who work in the public, you know, work for, uh, sorry, the private sector without, you know, it was kind of like a don't ask, don't tell, I guess, for a lot of it, just we're yeah. here all just working on a project. Um, yeah. To Even back to the people. like spam house, like the DNS and spam blocking days, it was a mix. It was a mix of the major ISPs who were dealing with the most spam, government agencies that were also quite worried about it. And it was just a good, it was a good mix. It was all the, all the, the big boys of the internet would come together and say, okay, none of us like spam except, you know, Bryce, that guy over there. He likes spam. But <laughs> the rest of us, <laughs> the rest of us, we can work together and like, uh, and, and cut out like 80% of this nonsense. It's just noise. It's costing us all money. Let's just get rid of it. But we don't seem to have that cooperation anymore. And I don't know why. Um, I think it's just money. I think money got involved. 
and yeah. altruism, money, money trumped altruism, I guess. Go ahead, Scott. Um, so the next thing that we have on here, which I, I'm not sure, I feel like this is my people out of proportion, but it also could be completely true. From the Daily Mail, I couldn't find much or many other sources about this, um, so I take this with a grain of salt. But it says that Saudi Arabia declares that people that post satire on social media can be jailed for up to five years. Um, basically, anybody who posts anything that is deemed satire or harmful to the to the country itself is um, could be charged under like terroristic crimes. Is is there any citation? This sounds ridiculous. No, yeah. it's, it's, daily, it's Daily Mail only, and that's all you need to know, really. It's I saw on a few different websites. It's on um, BBC. Yeah, I'd seen it a couple different places, but I wasn't sure exactly where it... I don't know. I'm not sure what... I, I remember any, any sort of government mandates from Saudi Arabia before, so I don't know where I look for those. This doesn't surprise me, and sometimes it gets lost in translation. Like, if the same sort of story came out about China, and um, they had a rule that said anyone inciting disruption of public order will be investigated, um, the average Chinese person will go, yeah, okay, that's good. And the government needs to keep track of these people that are disrupting my business. Um, and it seems ominous when it's translated into English. Yeah. Um, in these cultures, uh, they, they don't see it that way. And there's something lost in translation. However, I, I absolutely, it wouldn't surprise me if, if they did come out with something as ham-fisted as this. Like if you're not allowed to say you're not allowed to say anything negative about the crown prince or his family on the internet ever forever, or make a they joke. They do that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Tin pot dictatorships that that have got only a few years left uh, do that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it's real scary. Um, so the next, the last thing we had before we have Georgia come on here, um, we we just found out about this like a little bit ago, so I didn't put it in the show notes, but. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the um, the mega uh, Chrome extension, please? Yeah, that's. Um, I posted a link in the chat before, and Dan posted it on Twitter. It was only like an hour or two ago that it was posted to Reddit. Uh, so it seems that mega.nz, Kim.com's baby, uh, they got an official Chrome extension. I don't know what it does. I guess it makes it easy to upload and download stuff to your mega Thank account. They like use it to incentivize you downloading stuff. They say, "Oh, it'll be faster if you download with our mega extension." Probably he's probably got a cryptocurrency attached to it or coming out in. Well, not anymore because uh, Kim.com is about to wake up to some very awful news that um, that his application in the Play Store was found to be stealing credentials and especially going after crypto private keys and exchange yeah. credentials. Um, and it managed to get into the Play Store, and we haven't got any information on how many people were affected or installed it or whatever, or, or how this happened. Was it an inside job? Did, did Kimball himself get popped? Did he write it? We don't know. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't know, because I mean, there's, there's also people have, have owned, like, other, um, not dependent, dependencies or things that the other extensions are built on, and they might have gotten yeah. pushed. That too. So My first thought was, hey, this looks like a, uh, it could be related to some domain fronting, like stale domain stuff. Maybe someone took over a repository somewhere. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you look at the Chrome store, though, it, you basically pay five bucks to be a Chrome developer, and then you're like, oh, yeah, Chrome extension up. Like, I've yeah, done that's... it to, you know, write some stuff. And 
Um, this this was already was, an existing extension, though, and now like a later, a, a recent version was found to be backdoored. Now they yeah, have released right. another like, version. But the way that you update it is like you just drag, you basically just drag your CRX file or whatever it is into the browser and, ah, do you want to publish this? Yeah, all right. And then everybody yeah. gets a notification. To so you think some, someone could have like um, SE'd their way into like development rights to push out uh, an update to this extension? Yeah, it's basically just, you know, your your Chrome developer account or accounts if you're an organization. Like it's not, there's not a whole lot to it other than getting access you have to, to be added as like the maintainer to that particular application in the play store though right to be able to push yeah. out but there's a group i'm pretty sure there's a group that you can be added like so if you have a google authentic uh google organization i'm sure more than one account can push to the chrome store so it wouldn't surprise me i mean i mean if, if we were to make kim.com a project i think by the end of the week we could all be developers on his internal team probably getting invited to his house i think he's um <laughs> Not that hard to compromise. And uh, looks like hey, somebody's Kim, if you're listening, KiwiCon's coming up. Invite us around for drinks. We'll see you there, buddy. Yeah. See you <laughs> there, bro. If you're allowed to leave your house, which I don't think you are, but yeah. No, that, that's why we're going around to his place, because he can't leave. All right. Mega party. <laughs> Alrighty. Um so yeah, that's it for the news for the week. Um pretty pretty awesome stuff we got going on here. Um, but yeah, I'd actually like to um, invite Georgia to speak. Hi. Hi. Hi there. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I'll say I'm trying to level these out real quick. Um, but hi, thanks for joining us, um, Georgia. And me, I just got back from Denmark, so it's usually not so bad with Europe because you know you go to bed early, wake up early. But then you realize you scheduled a podcast for ten thirty at night. So if I sound tired, I am tired. But I will try and keep my usual level of enthusiasm. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Regardless, it's, uh, it's an honor to have you on here. So yeah. Um, so what what were you doing over in, in Denmark? Just teaching a class on pen testing, and I went to you know see Hamlet's castle and all that on my free day. That's really cool. Yeah, um, that's awesome. So, um, yeah, we got some, I guess, questions to just go through real quick and then kind of open it up to some people um, who are in the chat who want to ask you some questions because you know you have some fans. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll start off with, like, the basic stuff, like uh, who are you and, and what first caught you into uh, computers and, and hacking? Well, I am... The perhaps not so infamous writer of Penetration Testing, a hands-on introduction to hacking. And I'm the founder of a startup called Shavira, which everybody says is a stupid name. <laughs> it literally means pen testing in Hebrew. Because it's the destruction that makes way for harmonious creation. So I guess I should not be a branding expert, but I do come up with clever names. I'll give it that. <laughs> um, you know, I also have a consulting business called Bulb Security that's been around for a little longer than Shavira products at Bulb. We do, you know, pen testing and training, and that's where my book revenue goes and all that. 
you know, the typical pass-through LLC deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, those are, I guess, the big things about me and how I first got into computers. I actually posted a picture that, like, my mom sent me my, like, baby scrapbook, and she was actually getting her PhD. My mom, like, you know, took a little time off from work, you know, to have me, and, you know, got her PhD in computer science at the time, you know, as one does, I guess, when one is having a child, one, you know, gets a PhD in computer science, and uh, so there's, like, a picture of me, you know, long before I could walk without falling down, or, you know, form can coherent sentences um playing on the computer i remember playing a lot of of dos games we're very into educational games and i swear the reason i don't play the piano today is they hooked the piano up to the computer and the metronome was so good it could tell if i was off at all and i just hated the damn thing um yeah thank you computer for making me not a musician um, but that's how I first play, got uh, into computers. Do you ever play that's the exactly. game uh, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? Of course. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was I totally thinking did. about that the other day. That that game taught me how to brute force because I didn't know the answers to the questions, but there was only like four answers for all the questions. So eventually, oh, I played the game enough that I could brute force the whole game. Like I knew every possible answer. Right. Through shit force. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I hadn't thought about that game in a long time. But yeah, we had all like the reader rabbits and and secret solvers and all all those like educational Math games. Plastic. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was definitely like computers always. I don't remember like a ton of computers in the house. I think you know my first of me playing on the computer but I think my first sentient memory was you know my mom getting her PhD you know with the cap and gown so you know computers have always been a big part of my life that's awesome that's really cool that you grew up with it too that's something that a lot of people don't get to do so it's awesome to see that you actually did with that exposure um, so yeah I think, uh, I think they wanted well at least my mom you know to be I think a hacker like you know she bought me some books on it but you know at the time you know when I was really young it was you know the moral of the story was like the person always ended up in jail so it was like (laughs) maybe not so it wasn't until you know I I discovered you know the ethical hacking route that I thought maybe that might be a better idea yeah um so yeah um so Growing up with all this, how did you get started actually pen testing? I went to college early when I was 14 and graduated at 18. I had a math degree, so my mom was computer science. My dad was a physicist, you know, in the typical, you know, teenage give the finger to your parents kind of thing. I, <laughs> you know, wanted to be neither. So I did math, which I guess was halfway in between. but. You know, I guess and I even did one year of like PhD in math kind of thing. But I guess I realized I wasn't Einstein um, somewhere along the road. 
okay, I'm like 18 and I have no work experience whatsoever. Like McDonald's won't hire me. Um, cause they'd rather like, you know, take a 16 year old who's like, you know, a high school student. Um, so I went to grad school in computer science, like on a whim in a like security, like department and joined the cyber defense club. They always tell me not to say this, but it's late. But like the captain of the cyber defense club was like mega hot. And I kind of wanted to get his attention. He's married to the same girl he was with back then. So, like, obviously that didn't work out for me. But, you know, we hey, did the collegiate. Come on. Yeah. You miss every shot you don't take. <laughs> Michael Scott. We did the, like, collegiate cyber defense competition, the Mid-Atlantic Division, which is put on by CyberWatch. And, uh... I mean, it was a really, like, let me just break it down that the whole point was to make the students cry and vomit. You know, we played, like, weird security team of an organization that's actively under attack, but the red team, and they were, I've played on the red team since, and they were, you know, pin testers who were, you know, volunteering their time to kind of get the chance to go, you know, no holds barred which, you know, you typically don't get to do, and kept breaking into my machine and putting up this message box, and I didn't know enough about, like, how the Windows API or, like, remote access tools, or I think he used Nuclear Rat or one of the, you know, older ones, or even Poison Ivy. I mean, I'm dating myself here, but putting up this message box that said, I like turtles, and I just wanted to know how he (laughs) did it. (laughs) so how he kept doing this so by the end of the competition you know after i got over like you know the hell of what was you know 48 hours of you know trying to keep a network up that was under active attack um i realized i wanted to be just like them when i grew up shout out to ccdc Um, that's really cool though that like that you kind of came at it from a different angle though because you came at it I guess from more of the like math and just like logical side it seems like rather than the like destructive like anarchist side although it might have been this both <laughs> that's a really interesting path though into this this whole realm um, that I feel like is is something that a lot of people I mean I'm certainly horrible at math so <laughs> it's hard for me to understand that's the aspect of uh of both programming and logic. Yeah, theoretically I should really get like hardcore into crypto after I finish my second book. I mean, especially with blockchain being so big right now. Like everybody tells me that all the time because I do have the math background, but long time and I haven't used it that I doubt I remember any of the math but I'm sure I could pick it back up you know to be honest like there is a secret to blockchain math and that is just write math that nobody else understands and you will get investors guaranteed (laughs) yeah it doesn't have to be right it doesn't have just keep keep adding numbers like the longer the number the more money they give you As someone who has pursued venture capital, I take offense to the truth of that statement. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's really awesome, though. So now, 
having gone through this stage and you're, you know, college doing the, the competition, doing red team and stuff, what led you to actually start writing your book? Because your book is something that, that I recommend to so many people who ask about penetration testing. It's like the, the trifecta of like that one, the web application hackers handbook, and then hacking the, the art of exploitation are like some of the books that I feel are always passed around or recommended in a lot of different circles. And so it's one of those things that's like there are people try to do guides, people try to make blog posts, people make like, you know, medium posts and Tumblr or whatever. But yours is a very, very in-depth uh, uh, that spells out not just a single aspect of it, but just the entire, uh, I guess, scope, the, the whole continuum of knowledge that is pen testing, that is the jump off point for a lot of other stuff. And I'm really interested in just knowing how you actually you know, wanted to get into writing that book and also like what the process was actually like? Well, actually the publisher um, wrote me and asked me if I was interested in writing a book and to be a novelist. So I guess this was, I actually wrote a novel, you know, during my, you know, pre, I guess, you know, Schmoocon days when I was, slaving away at a desk at the government. I actually wrote a novel in my time off, but, you know, agents and and publishers and things don't write you back. But, you know, it turns out, you know, No Starch Press was looking for authors and actually reached out to me. And a lot of people made was I was going to write a mobile security book. But I had, at that point, recently gone through the OSCP security certified professional and uh I really didn't feel like I got as much out of it as I should have I mean I passed the test and all but I know a lot of people in the community I didn't really like have the resources that perhaps there are today so I didn't get all the boxes in the lab and you know the answer was if you ask the question which I get it now, as a business owner, because that means they don't have to pay people exactly. to help you. So it totally makes sense as a business person. But, like, you know, as someone trying to learn, you know, as, like, you know, the theory of, you know, how people learn, it really kind of sucks. Um, so I wanted, I guess, to write the book that I had wished I'd had when I was getting into testing I certainly had no idea of you know the kind of success it would have um, and I am working on the second edition very diligently as we speak and you know it was I guess 2014 when it came out so you know a lot has changed in terms of you know what we're able to do with online labs and you know things like that so I mean I want it to be I mean, not just a book, not just, you know, you do your labs and you're done, but really a of experience, you know, that people can, you know, continue to work through it once they're done with the book, you know, not necessarily to compete with OSCP per se, but just, you know, to or like fully interactive experience because, you know, you're able to do that a lot easier now than you were in 2014. Are you completely rewriting the book? Is this a completely new book, or is it like an update? Kind of a, 
it's kind of a mixture of both. I mean, it is going to be edition two, but it's going to be different enough that people who liked edition one, I think, will be happy to spend the money to buy edition two. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, all the targets are different. All the exploits are different. Um, but I mean, the idea of it being, you know, fundamentals, same. Uh, what was your experience like working with No Starch Press? Because I just, I know, I love them so much as a publisher. Oh, we all love No yeah. Starch Press. Yeah. So, like, any, like neat here's the thing. At the time, at the time when I would get back chapters that were like covered in red marks, naturally I hated it. And it was a very, I mean, I think writing any book cult. And it was absolutely a very, like, soul-destroying experience at the time of the editing process. But, you know, it ultimately made it so much of a better book. And whereas, you know, a lot of the other publishers are a lot more hands-off and just kind of, like, you know, put out whatever you, you know, throw on the page. No starch is very hands-on, you know, you are, like, very thoroughly edited in several rounds, and, I mean, that does make them take longer to come out, which, you know, then when people were, like, trolling me about how old it was, it's like, dude, you don't know how long we've been in the editing process, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're a really great publisher. They don't put out stuff that isn't good, you know, it had to be good before we were gonna get it out, and, I mean, if I looked at some of, like, the earliest drafts, they weren't nearly as good as, you know, what we finally came up with. Did they provide, like, uh, technical editors? Like, or do you have to come up with that st stuff yourself? You know, someone to make sure that, you know, this exploit works in this situation. I mean, with the technical editors, they do ask you if you you know, can find anybody or you have someone you're interested in working with. Um, like the first pass, like the completeness edit. God, I hope I'm not like, you know, giving away their trade secrets right oh, now. But like, no. just edit like they do the, like the um, copy edit and the layout edit they do. But yeah, obviously they don't have someone on staff who's a in, uh, you know, penetration testing and all the other, like, maybe the Legos, you know, I hope someone's an expert in the Legos at No Starch, you know. It seems the kind of place where someone would be, and they put out a lot of Lego books for those who don't get the joke. Um, I mean, they help you find the technical editor, certainly, but, you know, if you have somebody in mind, they're to work with that so then what is the actual process like to like compile this information like what were some of the the challenges that you faced when you did this because this is a lot of info that you have in, in your book like it's it's like it covers so many different things that that i would i was thinking about it like how would i ever arrange this information and i, I really don't know like how did you go through picking like what sort of um vulnerable services you wanted to to highlight and demonstrate and like what sort of techniques you wanted to put in there. Like what was that sort of process like? Well, I really wanted to do 
didn't do like everything I had ever seen on Pinterest ever because then the book would be, you know, too big and, you know, pages wise, you know, to print it, it costs X number of dollars or whatever. So, you know, we actually ended up cutting some things out that hopefully we'll make addition to like there was originally supposed to be a reverse engineering chapter, for instance, which I'm into addition to, but, uh, you know, I kind of like grouped it into the categories of the kinds of things that I see a lot on pen testing. Like, you know, it may not be single thing, but you know, you've got your, you know, your weak passwords, your missing patches, your misconfigured services, your like somebody's repo got busted and somebody added some, some nasty gram code to it. And if you, you know, send it special characters, it, it spawns a shell and, and, you know, the general stuff that I see a lot, like kind of just broken into categories. Yeah. Hmm. So no, I mean, like, yeah, it's just it's definitely just a lot of a lot to cover, and it's cool that you're able to then plan a second edition for it because there's a lot of stuff in there that I'd be like, I wouldn't know how to pare this down. <laughs> so frightening, I guess, about the second edition is it's like, you know, now all your tools are called like Death Star and Darth Vader and stuff, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> I still use Metasploit, man. Yeah, people like. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of the new tools and, and random things that are going to be interesting to cover, too. Like, what about, like, auto-pwn and stuff like that? Like, I don't know. Yeah, Casper I mean, it's, it's different. It's, what do you it's, it's difficult. The Casper security testing framework, you're going to cover the Casper DDoS tool in your new book. It's very important. Uh, yeah, important. LOIC. <laughs> um, Put it on my list. <laughs> <laughs> Just search for uh, just search YouTube for DDoS on any given day and pick like videos uploaded in the last twenty four hours, and <laughs> you'll find the latest and greatest zero day tools in the world doing. <laughs> oh yeah, two apocalypse now. Um, so yeah, um, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your your company. Um, so you have both bulb security for your consulting, and then oh, I can't. How do you pronounce the other one? Nobody can. Don't worry about it. it it's Shavira. Um, so at Shavira, we make products for mobility and the Internet of Things. Um, so we do actually a suite of products. So we do, you know, phishing and we do penetration testing. And we actually work with, uh, you know, a product that... Still doesn't have a name, oddly enough, you know, because they love to make up random names, but a uh, product yet has no name that uh, it's uh, testing the uh, of preventative technologies, which is not just needed in mobility by any means, but uh, we put a Band-Aid on this mobile thing, you know, very quickly with you know, mobile device management, which became mobility management, which became mobile application management, which now they're calling it mobile threat defense. You know, Gartner for, you know, $6,000 or so will put you on their magic quadrant to say you're an awesome tool that's going to save the world. In my <laughs> experience, you know, and, and anybody's experience, you know, working in pen testing, I mean, all you have to do to get around antivirus and 
all those things is is just drop something in PowerShell, right? Well, I mean, it's kind of the same sort of deal in mobile, except a little bit worse. Oh, you know, we have, I guess the, like, code name for it is who watches the Watchmen, but there will be a name for that tool at some point. But, uh, what? I mean, people get trained around, say, email phishing, but they don't get trained, like, don't scan the QR code in the break room that says it'll give you, like, a discount on, like, the next time you go to the restaurant in your building downstairs. If you install the, the app, that looks a lot like their app. And even on iOS, because it has a developer certificate, I don't really seem to care who they give them to. Yeah. No, that's really, that's an interesting aspect to, to build that sort of company around. Um, so I guess what, how, one of the questions that I, I've really, I wanted to ask you specifically, because you've, you've actually done this, how do you, or how did you transition from being like a, a pen tester um, to an actual like business owner, entrepreneur? Because it's something that I feel like a lot of uh, engineer types are are puzzled about because they, I don't know, most of the time are just making stuff because it works and they don't understand the concept of like actually selling yourself and marketing and you know working with a team. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, I was probably the worst specimen to be picked possibly ever. Um, I went through an accelerator called Mach 37, which is in Northern Virginia. And, you know, they said there was like a pool of 60 candidates. So I had to think how much worse could the other ones possibly be? Um, because, yeah, I very much the practitioner, you know, I mean... I could give talks, like, I mean, I'm not badging myself, but, I mean, there's a really big transition from being a practitioner or even, you know, having, you know, your one-person consulting company where you go and do pin tests, usually as a factor, because you don't know how to sell anything anyway at that point, um, and then, you know, all of a sudden be in a position where, you know, you suddenly have to be able to manage people and make sales and speak BC and explain what you're doing in like 90 seconds and, you know, all this stuff. And uh, I mean, it, it's been but at the same time, I think as a practitioner pretty much from the get-go you know i spent a little time like i said at the government desk you know basically watching youtube they hire seven people to do the job of a half a person so what else are we going to do with our time <laughs> this is why i don't have a security clearance so i can say stuff like this <laughs> um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I was always looking at it as a practitioner and always looking at it as a security person, that security is the most important thing. And now being a business owner, it's made me really understand, even on the consulting side, so much better that, you know, even as a security company myself, it's between making payroll or, you know, getting the latest version that a customer that's 
people are paying or whatever, you know, as an early stage startup, you know, I mean, security is the last thing on your mind, man, even as a security startup. I mean, send the thing out with SQL injection in it and fix it later, <laughs> and which really makes me understand my customers so much better because, I mean, it's true. I mean, at the end of the day, you just want to stay alive in the early stages, especially. Yeah, no, definitely. That's That's like... I feel like it's easy to badmouth a lot of like lazy devs and things like that, but sometimes it's just like you have only so many hours in the day, so many people that are working on a project, and sometimes it just it sucks. So you're just like, wow, I know there's a bone here, so hopefully someone doesn't hit it. Like, no one notices before I can fix it, kind of thing. Like, yeah. it, it's the truth, and it's made me, for you know, person to work with, you know, within my consulting practice, like I said, because came at it like security was so important and you guys are so freaking stupid for not caring about security and not fixing this. But now I don't know if compassion is the right word, but I just, you know, I have so much more of an understanding of like where they're coming from. I mean, security is just a, a line item in the budget to a company. It's not, I mean, aside from people, you know, like us who, who do this, like it's not anything to anybody. I mean, like my dad, who's a physicist, you know, really smart guy. I mean, when I was doing like multivariable calculus and quantum mechanics and was kind of getting in over my head, like he bought me a fax machine and would like fax me the answers to my homework, like two seconds later, like super smart guy like use this windows xp and i have never seen so many like add-ons to a browser but he won't put the printer on on the network because he's afraid it might get hacked like i mean this is what we're dealing with here i mean these are really smart people and we security people tend to like point it and laugh at them and be like you're really stupid but it's in fact failing because we can't make like really smart people understand these actually not very complicated concepts yeah uh, yeah definitely the whole there's only so many hours in the day thing is some that's an argument i always make as well against uh you know prioritize like for prioritization like we only have you know if you work nine to five you only have you know that many hours in the day and then you know however long you take for lunch is taken out of that and then you've got your attackers who have 20 people who work for 23 hours a day on meth in russia um and that's who you're defending against you know so yeah you know it'd be nice if the developers could spend all their time fixing sql injection but they also have work to do you know yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, as a startup person, you know, nine to five is not sick, but still at the end of the day, you eventually have to sleep. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, one at a time eventually. Georgia, what, what are some of the, the biggest, like, uh, challenges you had start, starting your own, your own company? Like, uh, what, what was hard about it? How, what did, what did you have to overcome? Have to overcome, I mean, learning how to speak. Like, 
through an accelerator and you know the for every week it was kind of like we would do our startup pitches and month program you know we were down to like seven minutes and you know i get on the stage the first week and start giving a, a security talk like i'm at defcon about like my research which is you know the venture capitalists go to sleep at that point let's be serious um so i mean having to make that transition to be able to you know, explain what I'm doing, and I've still not perfected it. Believe me. I mean, I I talk to you know venture capitalists all the time, and I have like an hour long conversation with them, and then they're like, "What is it you do again?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, I've really not gotten this elevator speech thing down quite yet." Um, really, just making that you know transition to. You know, it's, I mean, they're looking for different things. Like, it was almost like I had to throw all my laurels out the window and, you know, make a name for myself again. Like, you know, they didn't care that I'd written a book. They didn't care that a contract, you know, I came into the first day of my accelerator with my, like, DARPA Cyber Fast Track medal around my neck. You know, nobody cared. Um, yeah, and could, so it was really yeah. DARPA cyber fast track thing for a little bit because that um, no longer exists, and I'm I'm kind of wondering like how it worked out for you, and if if there's a similar thing these days, you know, for people who are up and coming. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that DARPA cyber fast track does not exist anymore because. Um, for those who don't know, government contracting, yes, is very, like, lucrative. You know, the SBIR, which something, something, you know, I have advisors to tell me what acronyms mean. Um, but, uh, people who get, you know, most government grants while they're very lucrative, you know, they're, they have people on staff full-time whose whole job and is to know how to get those grants and to write those grants proposals. Cyber Fast Track was not like that. I mean, it's not like I didn't spend my whole Christmas vacation working on the thing, but we're talking more like, you know, 15 pages about why I thought my research was important as opposed to, you know, a bunch of government speak and, you know, 100 and 150 pages on. So plus the turnaround time, I think from the time I turned the thing in to the time I, like, had the grant was, like, four weeks, which was, you know, by government standards, I mean, you know, they say you can live and die waiting for your, like, government. And, you know, now as a startup who, I mean, obviously, you know, the government is, is, is fairly interested in, you know, mobility and IoT security, but still, yeah, you really can live and die, you know, waiting for the, you know, the, all the right paperwork to come through. Cyber Fast Track was totally not like that, and it totally, my experience was it, it totally made my career, and I'm grateful, and yeah, I totally, like, have my challenge coin made into a necklace that I, I um, you know, you might see me at con with it on, um, great experience for me you know it allowed me to start my it started bulb you know my first company that 
I mean, it wasn't supposed to turn out that way. Most people who got cyber fast track grants, like, stayed at their companies. I just so happened to, you know, be at a company that was kind of rigid and was like, well, you kind of have three choices. You can, like, give the grant to us, leave. And I chose leave, <laughs> which, uh, so, you know, the grant kind of gave me, I guess, the seed money, if you will, to start, you know, my own consulting, which, again, at that point, I had no idea, like, how to get, like, clients or anything like that. But, yeah. you know, the the grant money gave me that opportunity to figure that stuff out, if you will. That's cool. That's really awesome. Um you know, the last question that I had for you, I guess, about your your company was, are you hiring anybody? Because we have people that are always listening that are looking for jobs and just wondering, putting that out there. <laughs> I would love to be hiring. Um, I'm currently not. Um, wanted to work for free. Um, and, <laughs> and even still, um you know, it's very much, you know, early stage startup slash consulting company right now. You know, we're capacity, but, you know, here's the thing. I will tell you this. See it on a massive scale, you know, the Ron Gulas and all them of the world who made a lot, a lot of money. I'll give you all jobs to go just do the research you want to do. Everybody who's into hacking, you're just, you can go work in my think tank and make money and work on your exploits or your whatever project you want to work on and well in the world of hacking. So I, I will nice. absolutely give you all jobs. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> um, so I kind of wanted to um, ask you some pen testing specific questions, I guess, as a practitioner and as somebody who is now like a, a knowledge source that people go to for information um, and advice. So specifically, I wanted to know how you feel that the field has sort of changed since you started. Because you, you had said that before you written your, you'd written your book, that you'd written, you wanted a book like yours to exist for taking like the OSCP or doing other pen testing engagements. Um, so like how how do you how would you say that the the field of of hacking and pen testing and infosec has changed since you got involved? Well, I think it's a lot more popular, which is why I imagine why they want a second edition and why my royalty statements are getting bigger, not smaller as the book gets older, which is kind of baffling. But I guess hacking is cool now, so you know, with like all the you know, TV shows and whatnot and all the news media that we're getting, um, you know, about breaches that more people are, are getting into ethical hacking. So, I mean, naturally, you know, we're seeing, you know, uh, an influx of, of, you know, people writing new tools. Like I said, like, I mean, people write me and they're like, how do you use this, like, Death Star thing in your practice? And I'm like, the what's a what's a now? <laughs> no offense to the person who wrote the tool that it probably is called Death Star, but like, I feel like, I mean, that's with writing the second book is just, you know, getting up to date on like the latest and greatest things are because all the stuff I've been doing is still working. I'm just, you know, using different tools, maybe. So, 
Yeah. I mean, or stuff that I wrote myself, but I mean, I certainly don't want to readers, you know, with a stone unturned. I definitely, I mean, especially with a book like this, that is, you know, kind of a survey. I want to make sure I kind of touch on, you know, everything that people are using. Yeah. No, and it's definitely, yeah, it, it, there's so many people now that are able, because we have things like Twitch and, and YouTube and the things that we're actually utilizing right now are the reasons why I feel like it's gotten a lot more ubiquitous too is because of the ease of access. Like you don't have to connect to some some weird sketchy IRC server and some, you know, to get access to some other FTP server to get your, your, your zines and your wares. Um, it's more like you can go on, on YouTube and, and search how to hack Facebook, and then you'll eventually get to the right path, I think. I right, know. and I, yeah, definitely, I think, you know, it, somebody said that to me, like, on Twitter not too long ago, that, like, you know, my OSCP experience versus, like, OSCP experience today is somewhat different, because, yeah, people can, they do have a lot more resources help than you know i had when it, they just had like the irc server that like had a bot that said try harder <laughs> um that, i mean i'm not kidding and it really you know made me want to break the monitor because it's not like a liberal arts college so you know i know a little bit about like the theory of how the brain learns and that's not it yeah. Um, so, but like I said, as a business owner, I totally get it now. They don't have to pay support people. They're, you know, they're hit, working on their bottom line. Totally awesome for them. But there are a lot more options now in terms of like, you know, going to YouTube or tutorials out there or there being, you know, hackable boxes, you know, out on the internet. I mean, we have you know, legal hackable boxes. I mean, there's always been hackable boxes, but like boxes out <laughs> on the internet that were set up to be hacked that, you know, we didn't necessarily have back then that, I mean, I'm having to take into account now in order to make, because I certainly want to make addition to, you know, not twice as good as the first one, but, you know, gazillion times better than the first one. So, you know, definitely count everything else that people have available to make it you know all that much more relevant yeah well that's awesome that you're, you're considering that though and then seeing that because it's it's definitely like like i i could imagine at that time of having to do something like taking the oscp or whatever and not having you know not having ever played with like like sl mail exploit that you have in there and you know before you have a chance to actually go and exploit that on the exam or something like you know, being able to like go through that, understand like what the what, you know, and, and being exposed to more services, um, which I guess it just it makes you more well-rounded. Um, but yeah, I definitely, um, yeah, I just I, I just dig all of the stuff that you've compiled. Um, well, you know, I the thing I remember the most about it was like I couldn't figure out why my like return address was backwards because. Like they didn't explain Indianness, and yeah. I didn't know Indianness. Like mm -hmm. the word Indianness to me at that point, I think it's like you know some crude term from either someone from India or a Native American. The idea that it started with an E and had to do with like you know how, what bytes CPUs put in what order, like 
was completely foreign to me. Yeah. <laughs> but now you can just Google that. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. Um, so, yeah, now we're talking about, though, the new generation of people that are coming into this. Um, what are some of the common misconceptions people have about pen testing as a practice, you would say? Well, again, we get into the kind of stuff that I've been told I'm not supposed to talk about, but I'll do the one that's not dirty. Um, <laughs> you, you know where it's going with the dirty one. I don't have to fill it in. But uh, a fair number of people seem to think that I'm like a quality assurance tester for like Mont Blanc. <laughs> Bad job, I guess. Um, but uh, I think. You know, a lot of, think, you know, that I'm, like, a bad guy hacker, you know, people who aren't in the industry, which, mm -hmm. you know, until not too long ago, you know, when I entered the business world, I didn't know very many people who were outside of the industry, but, I mean, I get a fair amount of people who think that, like, you know, my night job is selling exploits on the dark web, um, which, yeah, can you, you know, help me hack I my wish. girlfriend's Facebook, please? I get that, like, all the time, like, yeah, like, hack my girlfriend's Facebook or, you know, teach me how to hack kind of stuff, but it's like, oh, uh, yeah, I wrote a book about that, go buy it, uh, be glad to help you with that, be glad to help you with that, but not with the girlfriend's Facebook bit, because that's bad, but, uh. Like a WAMP server, <laughs> or some other vulnerable server, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely, um definitely a huge thing that I, I see a lot of people talking about uh, recently is just everyone's kind of been like, yo, everyone's, uh, everyone who has anything to do with hacking just gets bombarded with those kind of questions more so now than ever. And I mean, it, it makes it difficult because it makes me miss like legitimate inquiries of people who are like getting stuck with something in the book or have a business inquiry. Like, Whatever made people think they should send business inquiries on Facebook Messenger, I will never know, but they do, and they get missed, and, you know, I really wish there was, like, a, can we filter out everyone who is asking me to hack their, like, ex's Facebook, please? Because <laughs> I, I made a New Year's resolution once that I was going to answer, like, all my messages on social media, because I get a ton of, like, you know, unsolicited messages and whatnot, as one does, and I always feel like such a jerk for not answering them, but then it was, like, January 4th, and I realized that I had, like, was spending, you know, like, 15 hours a day just talking to random people on the internet, and, you know, if work is going to get done... <laughs> some balance here so to all the people i don't answer it's not that i'm a jerk it's that i'm trying to like get my work done <laughs> oh, absolutely yeah i feel like it's 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 yeah i see people who spend a lot of time on twitter i don't know how they get their security research supposedly done um but yeah um so now we're talking about i guess people asking questions about how to hack what are some of the most commonly overlooked skills that people who want to get into pen testing need to know about? Because I feel like there's, I mean, I see this a lot with people who take like exams or, or whatever. They say, oh, I didn't know about like X or whatever. Like they didn't, they didn't hit some point, I guess. Or what are some of the biggest pain points for 
people who are trying to learn as far as things that they just might completely overlook because they're not exposed to, like Indianness, for example. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I think that. I get a lot of people who, and I actually put up a repo today um, that has, like, all the vulnerable software and all the ISOs and everything from, you know, the first book, because I've gotten so many people, like, basically, you know, cussing me out because my, you know, four-year-old book is out of date. You know, you try and write a textbook. But, I mean, I think, you know, what's really overlooked is, back in on myself with the you know try harder bit but you know you're not necessarily going to run into the same vulnerability as you may have learned in your training but you know a little bit of critical thinking and you know perhaps some googling and you know you realize it's kind of the same class of vulnerability and you know, just because it doesn't work, you know, you know, straight off, like, exploit database in your lab doesn't mean that, you know, you won't be able to figure it out, you know, with some some time and effort. And I think, you know, there's a, I mean, going back to the, you know, influx of people who just, you know, hack my, my girlfriend's Facebook. I need a bot that says, figure out how to do it yourself. Um <laughs> you know I want to help people as much as possible but I mean at the end of the day you know so much is changing there's new technology every day the I guess to try until it works is what's I think overlooks the most I mean so many people want the easy win and the easy wins happen and I mean you always want to throw rocks at the people who like yeah I, I fussed it for like an hour and then then the, like the default password for root in the iPhone was like Alpine and still is thank you and it's like really you got famous for that <laughs> I, I mean I get it I get it I do but I mean a lot of it is writing a book I mean it's like you know perseverance and hours and you know I mean a lot of it is not fun it's not sexy but takes. yeah I mean we, we will make jokes a bit about um, like what hacking is actually like it's more of like basically like resolving a bunch of dependencies trying to download a bunch of libraries and get something to work once <laughs> sitting there waiting what for is that? Yeah. Um, no, that's that's definitely interesting, though. Is just is is the whole like I guess the work ethic behind it. It's the, the mindset. It's not like um, something that you can just be given. It's not just like a tool. Like there are tools that you can use. You can download lower, but I I can and start DDoSing your friend's uh, Minecraft server. But I mean, the actual work that goes into using that to do something more interesting is something that you actually have to. Really, I feel like obsessed over, but yeah. Hey, so we uh, we have a question on Twitch. Oh yeah, uh, from Pentester Lab. Hi, Pentester Lab. If anyone doesn't know Pentester Lab, dot com. Pentester Lab. They make good shirts. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I love that shirt. Such a nice shirt. Uh, if you if uh, what would you do differently if you were to rewrite your book? So I guess what is the what is the key thing that you'll 
change um, to sum her up? Well, um, I don't know that I want to give up my like trade secrets to somebody called PintesterLab.com. Who's <laughs> <laughs> probably going to be a competitor with me when it comes out. I think that should tell you enough. <laughs> That's fair. So, That's fair. Throwing, throwing some Leet Odes into your book, I guess, is what you would do differently. Anyway, here's the thing about all that. I mean, like, absolutely, you know, I love, it's probably my first love, you know, reverse engineering and exploitation. But I mean, I'm an absolute believer in, like, responsible disclosure. I mean, throwing O-Days, like, they hit everybody. What exactly have you proven to the Enterprise in that case? I mean, you know, I'm a pen tester at heart, you know. I don't find like using O days on like engagements. I mean, I mean, I know there's groups I can't name because of legal reasons who like to throw mobile exploits against, you know, political dissidents. She says with, you know, air quotes, but, uh, definitely. I mean, you know, it should be what we're after here. We should be at, after making a more secure world. I don't believe in hoarding zero days. I don't believe in using zero days on engagements. I think, you know, we should all be trying to make, you know, software more secure. And the internet is a secure place to live. Possible. But, uh, I mean, there will definitely be online labs in my new book. Awesome. As far as I'll go with answering that particular question. You'll be a competitor to Pentester Lab. They already on. That's what they have is uh, online labs, actually. So, kind of where I was going with. I don't want to give away too much. Um, yeah, I guess that would that's make awesome. me a competitor, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of services, but I feel like what's what's interesting though, what needs to always be the case, because there are bottlenecks in certain things, like say. There's only one type of OSCP type of thing. And if you fail that one thing and you can't get it or you get banned for whatever reason, um, you you know, that's it. There's not really many other practical ways to do stuff. Now, we fortunately have a lot of different services like Hack the Box, VulnHub, and there's a lot of resources and tools. And I feel like you, the fact that we have so many is really awesome. It, it needs to be diverse because there are so many different perspectives and there's so many different styles of learning. And I feel like it's it's really valuable to have a ton of different people from a ton of different backgrounds just building this kind of stuff. So I encourage that. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, think I think that, so. Yeah. I was going to say, I like the, the whole zero day in the book thing, I think, was a, a reference to uh, the art of software security, Mark Dowd and John McDonald. And they, uh, there was, a, there was a, a bug in there that they described. They published the bug to you know, for informational purposes, but I think it might have been six years before anybody noticed. It was like some time before uh, <laughs> before it came out. It happens, man. People are busy. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I guess now we're starting to get towards the end here. Um, we kind of talked about... All right. Um, do you have any other advice for any young people who might be listening to this? Um, for getting into this sort of field. Um, 
my main advice would be, you know, go the ethical way. I mean, you know, very young and, you know, Googled. There wasn't even Google then. I don't even know. I asked Jeeves how to hack or whatever. And, you know, didn't like go down that path. But I mean, really today there's no excuse. There's so much, you know, information available. There's so many, you know, options available for ethical hacking, you know, not just my books. So, I mean, definitely, you know, stay on the straight and narrow. Um, advice and you know too i mean follow your passions i know like all at least you know i was the kind of kid that was stuffed in lockers you know so to speak hence why i i went to college early just to get away from those people who bullied me incessantly um but you know it's kind of like you know the what is it the felicia days show that she did the craft she did like a uh so like now i'm the one that's cool and so it's cool to be like into software or hacking or or you know what have you but i mean follow your passions i mean if this really isn't something you're passionate about like don't be like yeah absolutely forced into it just because it, it's cool um right now um the bubble burst once before you know for young people who aren't old enough to remember the bubble bursting i like have some vague memory of it like people losing their jobs but when the bubble burst the first time so it's totally possible that you know if you're getting into this for money uh you could be you know at the wrong place in the wrong time um so definitely you know, follow your passion, whatever it is. If it's not this, you know, find something that is. That's true. That's a solid advice. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of kids that want to get into this kind of stuff, go to school for it, and then realize they're just not, they don't have the sort of mindset, I guess, the curious mindset that is required. Not just a hardcore technical and book smart, but like the kind of person who actually goes in and presses all the buttons. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's definitely awesome advice, and I thank you very much for coming on and sharing your your wisdom here. Well, thank you for having me. I hope some of it was coherent. Like I said, I'm still in European time, so it may have been completely incoherent, but I tried. <laughs> well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, we're all, it's uh, 11.30 now, so we're going to get off here, but um, thanks, everybody, for coming on, and hold on, actually, one second. Um, shoot. Um, yeah, I, I've been putting up a bunch of links if you don't see it in the chat, um, or it's in the window on the stream, um, about, uh, go to weekendhack.in. That is the information for our, uh, 24-hour CTF marathon that we are doing. So, um, please, everybody who wants to participate, take a slot and let us know, um, so you can get in on the fun. Um, and also shout outs to our um, Patreon supporters, Harmony, Mel Cookies, Rob Poners, and Sterling Mallory Archer. So um, we'll see you guys next week with a, a show on virtual DFIR. Um, something pretty cool. So thanks, and we'll see you there. Bye. Shut up and get a lawyer. See you guys. Bye. 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 Bye.